Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. This morning, I am so grateful for the opportunity to introduce to you a a friend. Today, you will recall that each summer, as, as I participate in the required seminars for my doctorate each summer, three weeks of seminars and writing and thinking and producing, and if you want to read something that'll, if you're having trouble at night going to sleep, I can give you some things I'm writing and you'll go right off. But as we go into each summer, and this is thanks be to God the last summer, of this, yeah, we're getting close. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, we're getting we're getting closer. I'll say. Each summer, the joy for me is coming to get, to worship and introducing someone who will feed us the bread of life this day. And I want to give a proper introduction to Dr. Joel Gregory. So, if you will indulge me, I, I just want you to know something about our guest today. So hear these words. Joel Gregory holds the George W. Truett Endowed Chair in Preaching and Evangelism at George W. Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University. In 2016, he spoke or taught 163 times in seven academic institutions, 36 churches, 17 conferences in 20 states, Wittenberg, Germany, and Oxford, United Kingdom. He brought the concluding message at the Baptist World Congress in Durban, South Africa last summer. He also serves on the BWA Commission on Worship and Spirituality. More recently, Joel was invited to bring the second annual ecumenical worship service in Charleston, South Carolina, a citywide event along with the governor and mayor to commemorate the Emmanuel Nine, lost in the act of racial violence at the Mother Emmanuel AMC, uh, AME Church uh, just last week. Joel holds a BA, summa cum laude, and PhD from Baylor University. He received his D-Men at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in 73. Um, in 73, uh, Joel, I was in preschool, but I'm just, <laughs> I, I just I'm just... Just to frame the moment for you, okay. (laughs) He taught preaching there from 82 to 85. He served uh, two terms, unanimously elected as president of the uh, 5400 Church Baptist General Convention of Texas. He's preached at venues as varied as Westminster Chapel, Spurgeon's College, and Kensington Temple, all in London as well as Regent's Park College in Oxford. He has preached at the Baptist World Congress in Seoul, as well as Durban, the International Seminary uh, at uh, Buenos Aires and Princeton Theological Seminary and Princeton University, uh, as well as scores of seminaries and colleges. Among his pastorates, 
were Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth and First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. His Proclaimer's Place seminars have been conducted in 18 states, Oxford, Paris, Rome, Athens, Wittenberg, and Israel. With more than 80 four-day seminars and more than 1,100 pastors trained in the last 10 years, for the last 12 years, Joel has taught the seminar at Regent's Park College at Oxford. For years, Joel was the preacher on the International Baptist Hour radio program, heard on more than 500 stations. He brought the annual sermon at the critical 1988 Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio entitled The Castle and the Wall, widely considered a watermark message in recent Baptist history. He is the author of five books, editor of three anthologies, and the subject of a nationally performed play entitled God's Man in Texas. He has been recognized by Baylor and his peers for his 50th anniversary in preaching. He is the husband of Joanne Michelle Gregory, who is an RN and a Baylor alumna, and they are the parents of four grown children. Would you give your warmest JCBC welcome to Dr. Joel Gregory. Well, thank you. That's a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning, John's Greek, and thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. It's so good to be here and to join not only today, but also next week with you. I'm a I'm a seminary professor, which means on weekends, I'm an itinerant preacher, what the Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor, the iconic preacher, called a hit-and-run preacher, come down. You have all kinds of experiences doing that, Pastor. I, I, I'm somewhere different every Sunday. And I got to the place early uh, the other day in the back. I was there before anyone on the pastoral staff. A member was over here, and we were eyeing one another. Uh, he's five side come over and greet me. He gave me his name. I said, well, I'm Joel Gregory. And he said, are you a visitor? And I said, yes. And he said, well, that's too bad. Our, uh, our pastor's not here today. <laughs> they're sending one of these seminary professors, and they're usually dull as dirt. And uh, uh, I didn't see him after church. I don't know what happened with that. I'm delighted to get to be here today. Thank you, Pastor, for the invitation and this uh, church for the maturity of permitting your pastor this time to unstring the bow uh, so we can uh, give some time to concentrated study. I'm fascinated by the series, this morphing idea. Pastor and I have talked about it some. I wanted to bring an angle of vision on that about navigating risk. Most of us, if we're part of Sunday school days, remember Jesus' parables spoken on Tuesday before his cross on Friday. It's a time of teaching when he talked about the reign or the rule of God. It's called the parable of the talents. But that's deceived us some because talenta was a Greek word for the largest coin minted in the Greco-Roman world. We have morphed that into thinking about our 
talents. Really, it refers to everything you do with the stuff of life that you've been given. Personality networks, energy, work, contacts, gifts. Do you risk them for him? You know the story, Matthew 25, 14. It's as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. One he gave five talents, another two to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who'd received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. Same way the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who'd received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. Then the one who'd received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you've handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. And I said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. One with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I've made two more. Said, Master, well done. Good and trustworthy slave. You've had been trustworthy a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. Then the one who'd received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seeds. I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. On my return, I would receive what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For all those who have, more will be given and they'll have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Is that worthless? They throw him in outer darkness, be weeping and gnashing of teeth because if you're navigating life in the kingdom of God, you might consider taking some risks. <laughs> you may have been on it. I, I was a while back. That, that, that tram that goes from Albuquerque, up to the top of Sandia Peak. If you have a little bit of vertigo, it's a nervous experience to begin with. You're, you're in a box hanging from a wire, going up mountain gorges till you get on top of Sandia Peak. Holds 50 people. People get on there trying to look casual about it, but when you start hanging from that wire, there's a sense of nervousness. On that day, even more so because a young man with a long canvas tube got on. I don't know about you, but in these kinds of days, if you're in a box with somebody with a long canvas tube, it makes you a little bit nervous. Everybody was eyeing him. Got up to the top. Some were curious enough to watch him. He went over to the edge of the mountain, opened it up, strapped onto himself, 
a hang glider and jumped off. Trusting that the warm thermals coming up from the valley would carry him down. Sure enough, they're like some kind of human bird. He made his way down. That's the kind of thing I like to watch. <laughs> We're pretty good at watching, aren't we? One of my colleagues at Tuat Liling Na is a rock climber. She practices at the Baylor Student Life Center, but then she goes out to sheer, sheer faces of rock, wedging her fingers and toes into the fissures of the rock, spidering her way up with the strength of an athlete, dexterity, grace of a ballet dancer. I really like to watch that. <laughs> they say every year 250,000 people run the rapids on the Colorado River. Haven't done it yet. I have a friend, he's nearly 90. Uh, he doesn't have to do it, he doesn't need anything, but he wakes up in the morning and turns on CNBC, gets his broker on the phone and does something uh, it's referred to as covered calls. He's explained it to me, but he'll put a lot of money in the market, some days up, some days down. He doesn't need to do it, but he enjoys taking the risk. wonder how often we associate the Lord Jesus Christ with calling us to take a risk. This Lord who walked along the lakeside at Galilee, eyed Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and dared to say, drop everything, follow me. And Peter closed down, Simon Peter Enterprises Fisheries, walked off and followed him. There's an oxymoron about Jesus in that regard. You might call it a secure risk. On the one hand, nobody hands you more security forever and forever. But while doing that, with the other hand, calls you to take a risk. I know we've called this the parable of the talents, but somewhere I like to call it the parable of risk. Because what it's about on Tuesday before he took the ultimate risk of the cross on Friday was to tell those listening to him on the mountainside that if you're going to follow him, you do have to navigate risk. Let me hand you a few things that speak to me out of this. Maybe it'll speak something in you. Because he does call you to risk participating in what God is doing rather than merely observing. Now, there are some dramatic persons in this, the five-talent and two-talent servant, but in a sense, they fall into the background. Uh, in one sense, they're heroes. In another sense, they're stage properties to set off in relief, really, the antagonist in this story. This servant to whom one talent is given, and even though he has less to lose, he does nothing with it. In Luke's version of this, the parable of the pounds, he buries it, but he buries it very elegantly. He puts it in a nice linen napkin and buries it, but he buries it nevertheless. Stultified in his own stagnation, incarcerated in his own inertia, in the paralysis of analysis, even though he has less to lose, he buries it. Karl Barth, continental theologian, 
made a statement one time that the essence of sin is sloth. Remember the first time I read that, Pastor, I thought that's a strange way to talk about sin, sloth. I thought a sloth was that animal didn't do very much. <laughs> but Mark struck on something. Just doing nothing. You know, I, I guess in volume two of Gregory's suppositions about the parables, I read between the lines. <laughs> you can almost see him as he looks at the other servants and explains away things. <laughs> he looks at the five talent servants. <laughs> yes, of course he can risk that. His father's rabbi smell fungus. He's head of the synagogue. Got a great, and so he explains why the five talent servant can risk. That two talent servant, everybody knows what he's like. He tells everybody what they want to hear, a born backslapper. Sure, he can. And while he explains away why others can risk, he lives a riskless life. Reinhold Niebuhr, the pastor in Detroit, an ethicist at Yale, told a story somewhere about an inland lad who'd grown up in a flat land farm, wanted to get away. At 16 years, he rode the rails to a port city, lied about his age, and became an apprentice sailor on a tall-masted sail ship. Out to sea on the third day, uh, the captain of the ship commanded him to climb up uh, the mast to the crow's nest. He'd never been that high in his life. He got halfway up and froze, just holding onto the mast like this. He was afraid of the heights above him, but he was also fearful of the ridicule of the seasoned salt sailors down on the deck. So he just froze, neither up nor down. And for the longest time, he clasped the mast and wouldn't move because he couldn't go up and he couldn't go down. Here's Jesus speaking on Tuesday before he died from the tip of his head to the top of his feet into the hands of the Father, believing the promise of the Father, looking out there, but looking out now his gaze across the centuries as if it were just you and him sitting at a table having a cup of coffee and asking what you're willing to risk. Risk participating in what he's doing rather than merely observing. You know, I've, uh, I've been preaching 53 years. I, I've, I've preached in all kinds of places and settings. One thing I've learned is the folks that are participating in what he is doing in their community are happier about it than those that are just bench warmers and observers. Edgar Allan Poe somewhere wrote a little story about a, another farm family. Every year the catalog came. That belongs to another age. Some of you all might remember. It's a big deal out on the rural route when the catalog came. They'd always order something. One year they ordered a collapsible telescope. It finally came and they trained it out. The farmhouse went at a, at a, at a building and saw a hideous, grotesque monster perched on the building. They said, we got this just in time. They locked the doors, pulled down the shades, waited for doomsday, going to head to the cellar. 
when the weest lad in the family noticed that it wasn't a monster on the building, it was a praying mantis on the window screen. <laughs> Magnified out of all proportion. <laughs> I'm tempted to say what's bugging you, but I won't do that. <laughs> they really were not aware participants in what is happening. Jesus said, I'm bringing you the kingdom of God, the reign of God in your life and someday on earth. But to be mine, you can't just watch, you participate. But that's really not the only thing. If you lean into this another way, it's uh, navigating risk. <laughs> and a more fundamental way, it's doing something rather than doing nothing. A friend of mine has this expression, see it there on the screen, halitosis is better than no breath at all. <laughs> something. Interesting, the rabbis of Jesus, they also told parable kind of stories. They left a record of them in literature. One of their stories was very similar to this. A master left, divided up his stuff among his servants, told them to invest it. But in that story, the one who risked it and lost it was elevated to the head of the house. Uh, the rest of them were demoted. It really turned Jesus' story upside down, made his heroes their villains. <laughs> their villains were his heroes. In Jesus' ethic or his order of life, about as far down as you can go is just to live life on the basis of being prudent, but also riskless. That's why he looked at that crowd and said, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose it for my sake in the gospel." You're going to keep it. That missionary hero the 1950s, Jim Elliott, who went down to the Auk Indians with Wycliffe Bible translators, when he was at Wheaton College, wrote in a flyleaf of a Bible, no man is a fool who loses what he cannot keep in order to keep what he can never lose. <laughs> Over in Texas, where I'm from, one of the state heroes is Davy Crockett. Every town in Texas got a Crockett Avenue. <laughs> I don't know whether Davy said it. Fess Parker did one time. Look before you leap. And that may be true if you're Davy Crockett looking before leaping, but here's the truth of the gospel. If Jesus is who he claims to be, he has the right to go to people and say, leap, and we'll do the looking later, <laughs> because he is Lord. That's why he walked up to Matthew, who had a cushy position. Oh, he was a sellout, a Benedict Arnold, a quizzling, a turncoat, but he had a good position. And he said, get up and follow me. And he got up and followed. That's why he looked at that marginalized Zacchaeus up a tree out on a limb and said, get out. 
Everything's about to change. I'm going over to your house. And they were willing to take the risk. You say who? The, the footlights, the floodlights of life on me? Does he really expect me to risk something? <laughs> Somebody said about, in fact, Buckner Fanning, the late Buckner Fanning, put it up in front of Trinity Church in San Antonio, biggest Baptist church in town there, seven last words of the church. We never did it that way before. <laughs> Does he really come to churches as well as people and say it's time to come to rest? Or do we use that little piece of doggerel poetry, come weal or woe, the only status we know is quo. <laughs> he still comes. He comes to persons, he comes to families, he comes to churches. And he says, take a risk. For just a moment, let, let me just walk towards something else in that. The real resolution of this is in what is in a sense of the, the third act of it. When he calls on us to risk accepting responsibility rather than placing blame. In verse 19, he says, after a long time, the Lord of those servants returned. Incidentally, if anybody's worried that uh, maybe somebody missed the clock about Jesus' second advent, he gives a little clue right there. After a long time, long time, he returned. First thing he does with all of them is nail them to whether or not they've been willing to take a risk in the language of this story. Five talent, hmm, that servant comes. Look, five more. What a commendation. Well done. High five. There's more of the same for you. Welcome. Now, when the two-talent servant came, he didn't come, well, you two-talent servant, uh, you disappointing, three-talent short, slacker, you only got two. No, 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 no. He got the same words. In English, exactly, and the same words in the Greek New Testament. Same words, well done. You see, the Lord who numbers the hairs on our head knows our capacity for risk. For some of us, it would be a huge risk to cross the street, greet a neighbor, and say anything about his kingdom. Others of us, it would be to cross the city and still others to cross the world. He knows that. Five talent, but wait a minute, here comes the antagonist. <laughs> it's one talent, sir. He has his speech ready. I know you're a hardened man. You try to gather where you haven't sown. Well, first of all, it's a lie. <laughs> Pure and simple. Gaslighting. A lie. He, his master was anything other than a hard man. His master trusted him. His master gave him the stuff of life. He was a good master who'd already told the other two servants, well done, here's more. <laughs> it's interesting to play the blame game against God. 
Anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. Our first parents did it, according to Genesis, you know. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake. They all blamed the apple on the tree. Problem with the apple on the tree, there wasn't the apple on the tree, it was the pear on the ground. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you all wide awake today, I can tell. The blame game. We've refined it now almost infinitely. We've refined it right down to the determinism of the DNA that, quote, makes me do what I do because I'm programmed that way. But that's not the gospel. I know you're a hard man. No, he's anything other than a hard man. Then he blames his own fears. See, I was afraid. He'll go... Uh, Google it, you'll find there's 800 named fears right now and counting. Everything from agoraphobia to claustrophobia to triskaidekaphobia, fear of Friday the 13th. One of my favorite ones, a named fear, is homilophobia, fear of sermons. Uh, uh, we got 800 of them now. I was afraid. Here's a Lord whose apostle says, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of love and power and of a sound mind. We need to face the stern but real fact that this master blaming him or blaming our own fears just didn't make it. In fact, come close to me. Here's something else in volume two of Gregory's suppositions about the parables. If this one talent servant had risked it for his sake and lost it, I think he would have told him the same thing the father told David when David wanted to build the temple and couldn't do it. Do you remember? Samuel, the father said, I know you had it in your heart. It's a beautiful word. You can't do it. You see, if God's given you pebbles, he doesn't expect you to build pyramids, but he does expect you to build something. If he's giving you burlap thread, he doesn't expect you to weave a golden garment, but he expects you to weave something. The denouement, the end of this story here, the outcomes, this man who did nothing becomes a cipher, a blank space, a zero. Take, take what he has and give it to someone who would Take a risk with it. Somewhere in the great reign of God, you see, the universe is not a cybernetic machine spewing out impersonal fate. Our gospel says it has been tilted in favor of those who are willing to take a risk for the kingdom of God. Tilted by nail-scarred hands in favor of those willing to risk something. <laughs> Major Ian Thomas told a parable about some parable. Can't remember exactly when, but I, <laughs> there was a there's little beggars sitting by a road and Andy a loincloth on and fingering the 
last grains of rice in his bowl. <laughs> Cursing his own uh, karma in a sense, few grains of rice between him and starvation. <laughs> Plume of smoke on the horizon. He put his little ear to the ground and trained as he was. It sounded like a hundred horses hoofs. <laughs> sure enough, a gilded coach pulled up and a grand person got out, the Maharaja, saffron robes, beautiful. He held his little bowl up. And the grand one said, give me a grain of rice. Couldn't believe it. Give you. He spat on the ground, handed him a grain of rice. Is that all? One more turned away. <laughs> Grand one got in his gilded chariot, went down the road. Stunned in unbelief, fingering the rice in the bowl. He felt something hard. Got it out. It was a grain of gold. <laughs> well, then the rice didn't matter. Poured it out, clawed through it. One other grain of gold. In the exchange, it would have been a grain of gold for every grain of rice. We serve a Lord who in a very real sense took the ultimate risk. Not just of incarnation, God in the flesh, but the risk of Calvary. The risk that always goes with open-ended love and putting himself on that cross in what was at the same time the worst and the best moment in human history looks out at you today and asks, what will you risk? For somebody, this balcony around, across this lower floor of this sanctuary, that might just mean taking a risk to publicly, yes, out in the open, identify with him. Are this his body? Or one of the toughest risks. When you've been on the main line and gotten on the sideline of saying it's time to come back home. Pray with me a moment, Lord, of the risk. May your spirit help us hear this holy word. Lord, in my life and in the lives of these beloved folks, may that same spirit push back every argument that this is just not the way things are. And may we trust that you've already tilted life in favor of those who risk for you. Lord, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. May this word spoken then speak now. May this word spoken there speak here. And may every individual and this church together 
learn what it is to navigate risk, knowing that the safest place to be is in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.